Game seven, eight seconds left, home team down by one. Oh, the home team strips the ball and the point guard is all alone. But it appears that there's a wet spot on the free throw line. The fans go silent. Their championship aspirations flash before their eyes. Wait, someone's running out on the court. Oh my, it's the towel boy. How did he clean it so fast? The point guard takes off and dunks the ball. Game over, the crowd erupts. Towel boy, towel boy. Hello, and thank you everybody for that sensational standing ovation. My name is Andy. And I'm Landon. And we are the Towel Boys. Welcome to Podcast 36. Today is February 8th, 2021. We're about six weeks into this new NBA season, which is about a third of the games that will be played. And on this podcast, Lan and I are going to talk about the past few weeks of NBA basketball, discussing some of the NBA news, some stat lines that really popped out. We'll be talking a little bit about rookies. We'll go into some of the teams that are rising and falling the fastest. And then finally, we'll look at some potential NBA All-Stars, which, believe it or not, All-Stars will be picked at the end of this month. Yeah, they started voting last week on Thursday, and it just felt like it was way too soon. But with the shortened season and, you know, everything going on the way it is, we just accelerated right to the voting. And I sent some in the first day. I felt pretty good about my starting five. Uh, did you end up voting? I have not yet, but I will. I'm waiting for those double up days. Those are the, those are the great days. Your vote counts twice, you know, that extra feeling of security, knowing that <laughs> you're important. So that's what I'm waiting for. But yeah. Nonetheless, no, I am sure that that while LeBron James and Jimmy Butler are two guys who are going to receive lots of votes, they would much rather be on vacation still because they worked their butt off a couple of months ago. So this is definitely well, pretty weird. That definitely is valid for LeBron. Jimmy, on the other hand, has not played that many games, so he might not even. That's true. He, make he it might into have been game. on a yacht the last couple of weeks. We're not sure. He might yeah. be at games. It might be a replica of Jimmy. We're not sure. That's that's fair. He, he was out for COVID for a while, came back 12 pounds skinnier. So that was pretty scary for a little bit, but he seems okay. Seems pretty healthy. Yeah. So let's kind of get into some of these individual performances that really stuck out. Starting with, I mean, some of the most incredible stat lines I've ever seen from a big man personally. I know you can look back at the Wilt and the Shaq days, but we didn't witness those. So Nikola Jokic, two of his last three games. Three games ago, he had 47 points, 12 rebounds, and 5 assists. And last game, he had 50 points, 8 rebounds, and 12 assists. These numbers are ridiculous. It's like he has just given up on trying to be like a 20-point-per-game, like 12-assist guy, and just gone for it on both sides. Like shooting, you know, scoring in the paint the mid-range, and then still doing the facilitating from the top of the key. He is an elite offensive general, and it goes beyond that because of the various way, creative ways that he can put the ball in the basket, no matter the distance from the basket. So I'm kind of looking at these stats now, and a lot of people still think Joel Embiid is the front runner for MVP which, of course, you can't take anything away. The Sixers are the number one seed. He's averaging 29 and 11, and he's shooting the ball really well. He's shooting 39% from three, and, of course, Embiid is a phenomenal defender. But looking at Jokic's numbers, he's up to 27 points a game, 11.5 rebounds, 
eight and a half assists, almost two steals a game. He's shooting 57% from the field, and he's shooting 39% from three. Like, these are ridiculous numbers. Is he the front runner for MVP right now? It's so tough looking at the three candidates in my mind who are, well, I, I should say there are four. Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic are the two most obvious ones, but you can never take LeBron James out of the running. And then Kawhi Leonard is completely discounted by the NBA fan base at, you know, as a whole right now, but he's putting up wild numbers and leading his team to a great record as well. Yeah, I think the Jokic and B debate is very interesting because while Jokic is putting up these numbers, it has not translated to wins as much as Joel Embiid's numbers have. And I'm pretty sure there's a stat out there that says the Sixers starting lineup has not lost a game together when it's fully intact. And that just goes to show you the power of Joel Embiid because Ben Simmons has almost been an offensive liability this year. And there's not much shot creation on that roster. So Embiid's taking on the brunt of that offensive playmaking. And one name you did not bring up that is pretty common in the MVP running amongst NBA Twitter is Kevin Durant. Do you feel he's next up in line? You know, he was right there. Even after the James Harden trade, he was still there. I think he's dropped off for me. I mean, having three stars on the team like that, at that caliber of offense, it's tough when your teammate leads the league in assists like that to then just win an MVP. Right. And the numbers, the numbers are there for Kevin Durant. He's averaging 29 and a half, seven and five. He's putting up crazy numbers. But like you said, playing with two other all-stars, especially when your team's not a top two seed in the East, or I mean, they're pretty close to 500 right now, that, that's going to be tough. That's really working against you. Like we saw, we saw in the Warriors when you had Kevin Durant and Steph. They had amazing records, but still they're fighting against each other for MVPs. Right. So it's, it's definitely a lot harder this way. But I'll give numbers, you this. Numbers are Jokic... The, the numbers that Jokic have, has been putting up are the most insane numbers in the league like throughout every player right now. He puts up the most ridiculous stat lines. Part of it is because he's so unorthodox for his position. The other part of it is he's a top 10 player that's better than almost everybody else. And I'll go as far as saying that if, if you don't think Jokic's numbers are the most impressive in the league, then I don't know what's wrong with your eyes, but <laughs> he clearly is putting up the most impressive stat line. If you want to argue the 76ers record for Embiid being one in the MVP race, I totally get that. Well, the and, other thing you could argue there is the defense, of course. <clears throat> right. And I mean, when Embiid doesn't play, they lose. So <laughs> I mean, exactly. like he's incredible. Right. But we'll see how, I mean, if the Nuggets end up playing, <clears throat> excuse me, playing better, winning more games, then Jokic might be the front runner. But yeah, let's move exactly. on to the Luka Steph show that we saw the other night where Steph dropped 57 points hitting 11 three-pointers and Luka Doncic dropped 42 points, 11 assists, and seven rebounds. First of all, which of those stat lines do you think is more impressive and why? I find the Steph one more impressive. Uh, I mean, look, honestly, these two teams are pretty comparable in my mind. I thought both would be better than they currently are. They struggle with spacing around their star who's supposed to do everything for their team. And, you know, the records show that they need to add more pieces to really become contenders. So I I do think that these two teams are somewhat intertwined this year. 
and watching these two guys duel it out while the rest of their team, you know, wasn't able to keep up with those two guys. It really goes to show you the star power that you just saw going against each other. Yeah, what an, what an insane game. And I think I have to agree with you that while Luca 42, 11 and seven is, is crazy dropping 57 points when you know, you're the center of attention. There is no clay Thompson, which I really want to emphasize how much more impressive it is that Steph's putting up these numbers while still being efficient without teams having to worry about Klay Thompson as well. It's really yep. the Steph Curry show because trust me, teams want Andrew Wiggins shooting. They want Kelly Oubre, which besides the one game we're about to talk about, they want him shooting. They want Draymond Green shooting. What Steph's doing is absolutely insane. I would put him in the top five to seven in the MVP race right now just because of his impact. He's been sensational. And then you look at the other side. The Mavericks are really struggling outside of Luka Doncic. Porzingis has looked okay coming back to form. Of course, it's going to take some time, but it's really Luka carrying that team. And they're they're not playing great, but they're staying afloat. Yeah, exactly. Carrying to the 14th seed in the West. I mean, Luka has not had his best year either, despite putting up crazy stats. And that kind of leads me into my next point, which is I think that the triple-double and near-triple-double, that entire idea of an elite player doing those kinds of things that has become overhyped to the maximum degree in my Absolutely. opinion. Absolutely. Uh, well, if you just look at it from a triple double perspective, yeah, you might have impressive numbers, but if you have seven turnovers a game, like I know you have the ball in your hands a lot. And a lot of these guys, do you know why they pick up this many assists? It's because they always have the ball in their hands. So yes, while some of the plays they make are incredible, a lot of them are pretty easy and the rebounding, to me, doesn't matter as much when you're, when you're going for a board and there's three of your own team there and you call it. A lot of the superstars do that to try to grab triple-doubles. So I, I agree with you. I think the, the notion of triple-doubles meaning significant impact, I think it's overhyped to this point. I think they're right. really past the point. If you look so at then, a guy who plays great defense like Hawaii, who's not going to pick up those assist numbers, like more than makes up for it. And then when you're looking at a near 60 point game compared to a near triple double the yes it's three different stat categories that are all close to double digits and it looks pretty but 40 is one thing right we see 40 point games pretty consistently from star players but getting up to 57 without any spacing around you is yeah. just nearly impossible there are very few guys that can walk out there with those teammates and do what Steph did that night? 100%. I would say if Luca had 42, 15, maybe 17 assists instead of 11, then we're talking. But like you said, shooting, he shot but, 19 threes, hit 11. But and the, the idea, there you go, like 17, like the assist number shouldn't matter. The board number shouldn't matter. It's like the eye test. That's what matters. And watching right, but Steph if, do that is what made his yes. performance better. Yes, but I, I, I guess I assumed that 15 to 17 assists means some of those assists are coming off incredible plays and that many points accounted for, to me, would put it over. But like 11 assists is the new like five from back in the day. I don't know. And 57, yeah, like you said, you don't get that very often. No. Um, okay, so one more piece of NBA news from an individual perspective. 
I just wanted to shout out Kelly Oubre for having his 40-point game. Uh, he had a rough, rough start to the year. The Warriors went into insane amounts of luxury tax just to acquire him, hoping that he could kind of replace some of Clay's production because he was like an 18-point-per-game scorer last year with the Suns. And people were just harassing him because he was shooting terribly from three. He wasn't doing anything from the mid-range. The Warriors were losing. Well, he has gotten into a rhythm a little bit, and he's doing what they were expecting him to do, and they brought him in. So, uh, yeah, congratulations, Kelly Oubre. You got the monkey off your back. You had a nice game. Hopefully, Warriors yeah. fans are being nice now, now. Now, continue it, because he's still shooting terribly from three. But that game, 7 of 10, is perfect. It's incredible. So, right, yeah. Shout out, 40. If you can do that consistently, and when Clay gets back and he becomes a third option, they need one of Wiggins or Oubre to step up. I'll say that. Wiggins has been stepping up. He's had a fantastic year. Defensively, yes. I'm I'm, a wor- I'm still worried about the efficiency on the offensive end, but that's defense first, right? Well, I, I mean, him playing at a complementary role with Steph, once they brought Draymond in too to facilitate, I think Wiggins is in the perfect role right now. He's not, you know, you can argue who's better, him or Draymond. I would say Draymond is even still better than Wiggins despite only putting up, you know, an embarrassing point total. <laughs> um, yeah. But the point being, Wiggins has really had a transformation. I think he's matured a lot, and everything that we talked about before he, you know, when the trade was announced, him going to the Warriors, going into like a good system, a good franchise, I think a lot of that has come to fruition. Yeah, the shooting the shooting numbers have been better, which is which is big. But career high and field goal percentage. Career yeah. high and three-point percentage. I mean, what more can you ask for? This guy's suddenly shooting 39% from three on five attempts per game. Yeah, I guess, I guess like, in my mind, it's 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 not fair, but it's the expectation given the talent and where he was drafted. But no, I mean, like you said, he's he's been great this year. So, yeah. I'll revoke what I said. <laughs> okay, good. Moving on to team news. Kevin Durant. Told he can't start, breaks his starting streak of like 800-something games, then starts playing, then gets pulled because of health and safety precautions, just like pregame, because somebody he was around ended up testing positive. And then his 10 points a game streak, I think, snapped. So that was kind of a wacky game. What were your thoughts on that? Well, I don't... He kind of destroyed the NBA on Twitter following that game. And I understand why, because that's just a roller coaster of emotions. But when I'm thinking about the NBA's protocols, they are a little weird. Because how can you justify take saying that the guy wasn't gonna play, then allowing him to play a little bit, technically infecting everybody, right? Like assuming he's breathing on them and right. playing basketball with them, and then pull him again. I it just doesn't make sense. It's too contradictory. Right, and if you do pull him a second time, wouldn't that mean that these teams now can't play for a while? Right. Or they have to exactly. get exactly. So because it takes a few days for to develop, we're not gonna break that down. But yeah, it was weird, and he probably should shouldn't have played that game. Should have just waited. But I think it all comes down to the NBA wanting to market their stars and they want to profit. If Kevin Durant misses a game, that's money being lost. So, and and given these times, the NBA really needs to 
to inch out every penny they can. So it's it's a weird year. That was an extremely weird event. Hopefully everything's fine with Kevin Durant and he can get back to playing basketball soon. Agreed. I, I hope that he calms down a little bit because it's really bad from both perspectives of like the league and the player to start tweeting stuff like that at each other. I mean, that's that's not what you're looking for in a league player relationship. So No, not at all. Hopefully Moving that's on to more positive news. Doors. Moving on from a sour relationship to the most romantic relationship in the NBA, Derrick Rose <laughs> and Tom Thibodeau. <laughs> Again. I hated this trade so much. What, what did you think about it? It it was weird because I expected Rose. Well, first of all, he, I think you said this yesterday to me. Rose should have been traded last year for a first-round pick. Absolutely. So that, that should have been starting point A. So now that they're here, if they really couldn't have gotten a first-round pick, which I think they probably could have if they really held out a few more weeks. So now they traded Dennis Smith Jr. They traded for Dennis Smith Jr. in a second-round pick. So if you want to take a flyer on a guy like Dennis Smith Jr., if you're the Pistons, sure. I mean, you're not very good. Maybe he could turn it around. It was some weird situation where Smith Jr. wanted to play in the G League and the Knicks were like, nope, I don't know. And then a second-round pick with it. It's a second-round pick. It's not anything super valuable. D. Rose, a guy who's 34 now and is a pretty solid, close to an elite bench scorer, you can call him that, going to a team that's probably going to make the playoffs as a lower-end seed, but not going to do that much. Kind of a weird trade. Well, okay. First of all, probably going to make the playoffs is a little much for my taste. At least. One of the 10 seeds. Play in. Okay. That's that's definitely more reasonable. Um, I, I thought this made no sense for the Knicks. And I'm not saying that they paid a crazy amount for him. Obviously, Dennis Smith Jr. wasn't even playing. So it doesn't seem like a big deal on the surface. But... The Knicks aren't winning the title. They're not making the conference finals. They're not getting out of the first round. Probably not getting out of the play-in, in my opinion. Using draft capital to get a 34-year-old veteran, I don't care if it's a second-round pick. That second-round like second-round picks have turned into role players, some even stars. That is a complete waste of resources and just shows me that the Knicks are heading down the same old path. Maybe it was just, you know to oblige Thibodeau's desire to reconnect with Rose. But from an organizational standpoint, I thought that was just stupid. So I don't share nearly as strong of a distaste towards the trade as you do. I don't think it made the most sense. But from the Knicks' perspective, why not try to bring in a guy who's going to market to the fans? It's Derek Rose. It's a former MVP. Of course he's not the same player. But he's pretty damn good still. And that's a big-name guy bringing to the Knicks. He can help mentor young guys quickly, can learn a lot from Derrick Rose and his floater game and his ability to tack the basket. And the Knicks want to be kind of competitive. They have a lot of cap space. D. Rose is expiring. So who cares? I mean, they didn't if if I mean a second round pick's not that much. And Dennis Smith Jr. to the Knicks had zero value. They wouldn't even play him in the G League. So to me, I think D. Rose could have gone to a team that is more competitive and it would have made more sense for him but from a Knicks perspective I don't think it's that bad of a trade at all don't even get me started on the side of Derrick Rose why would you want to go to the Knicks he seems pretty happy about it 
Like they're not winning a championship while you're still playing. That it just I agree makes with. like no sense. Desire to go to a place where you can win a ring, cement your legacy even further. If Derrick Rose wins a ring, he probably gets into the Hall of Fame, and without it, who knows? I just he should have gone for the Kyle Lowry chip to cement his place in the Hall of Fame, and I really do not support this trade from either side. If that's not clear already. <laughs> Well, D. Rush, I have a feeling he approved of this. Once again, I am totally on board with why did Derrick Rose do this. From a Knicks perspective, though, I think it makes some sense. So that's my take on it. But let's move on. Christian Wood, who is having a sensational year, another breakout year, if you consider the second half of last year's one. He got hurt. It's a pretty bad ankle twist, right? Something like that, sprain. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know what the exact terminology they used was, but his foot bad. was sideways on the floor. Right. So. so they said he's being evaluated week to week, which probably means more along the lines of like three to six, if not more, rather than one to two weeks, if I had to guess, based on how the injury looked. So that's a big blow to the Rockets, who are really starting to play better basketball. They're about 500 now. So without Christian Wood, can this team stay afloat, or are they about to tank to the bottom of the West? They can stay afloat, and I'll give you one man, one reason, Boogie. Boogie. He is still a very good player. And when Christian Wood was hurt a couple weeks ago, he took over and was a monster. And I fully expect him to do that in this situation as well. The opportunity's there, and this is a guy that was a former All-Star that could you know, drop 40 on you any night he wanted because he's just so damn big and so talented that when he gets in the low post, you have no shot. And he's gotten away from that because of the injuries. But I have been a boogie believer this whole time, like since the Kings days. I think he can be a huge contributor on a very good team. And that could be the Rockets. They have some great pieces. I, I agree with you that they can definitely stay afloat. Oladipo and John Wall, regardless of how many games they play, have both been pretty impactful, especially John Wall, who looks really good again. Eric Gordon is still a guy who can drop 20 any given night. He's so they have good. a bunch of other playmakers, like a P.J. Tucker, who, while he doesn't put that much up on the stat sheet, still an impact player. And like you said, Boogie down low. DeMarcus Cousins is still good. You can't disrespect him. So yes, Christian Wood. Probably the best player, the most talented player on that team. But they can definitely stay afloat without him. I don't think they're necessarily going to win more than 500 than half their games without Christian Wood. But they can definitely stay afloat to where they can still compete for a lower-end playoff spot or play-in spot. Yep. I'm actually going to talk about them later, so I'm not going to say anything else right now. But yeah. let's move on. Let's quickly look at the, the West and the East just kind of some of these standings and the sure. observations. So the West seems like they're breaking apart. It seems like there's a tier one forming, or if you want to call the Lakers in their own tier, you can call the Jazz and the Clippers as tier two. But these three teams have really distanced themselves in the standings. And of course, the one team that's surprising is the Utah Jazz. Let's be honest. The Jazz are not winning the title. I no. I, no, I don't no, care no. what you tell me, but people are asking that question. It's like, oh, the Jazz have the best record in the West. Can they win the title? They cannot. I'm sorry, but 
they cannot make it through both LA teams. If you want to convince yourself that they make that they can make it through the Lakers, let's say an injury happens or something, sure, whatever. Or the Clippers, the Nuggets did it last year. The Jazz almost beat the Nuggets. You know, you could put two and two together and say, oh, okay, like the Jazz have a chance against the Clippers, sure. But to make it through both of those teams takes a ridiculous amount of talent because you're going against two out of the three best players in the league in those two teams. And the Jazz don't have enough talent to do that. Well, the Jazz are the one seed. So if they did get the one seed, they don't have to go through both of them. So then it's interesting. Well, they could if one of them slides to the four. Right. Do you see that happening? <laughs> I don't. I mean, with these coronavirus policies and everything, you never know. Yeah. Well, at that point, it might be strategy. The Clippers saying, yeah, we could avoid the Lakers for another round. Let's do it. But <clears throat> Duck and smoke. I, I don't. I hope not. I'd like to think that no team is trying to do that, but who knows? No, I don't think they will either. But yeah, there's three teams looking really good. East real quick. Two teams. It seems like the East is kind of forming to how we thought in terms of where teams are in the standings, where you have the Sixers, the Bucks, the Nets, the Celtics, the Pacers, the top five. But two teams, which were up there last year, are not having good seasons. The Toronto Raptors and the Miami Heat, due to injuries, COVID concerns, players being out Landon, do you foresee these two teams being back in the top six or seven seeds or do you think they might struggle to to get there this year so the raptors and the heat have very different problems um the raptors have been pretty much healthy all year and they have a terrible record the heat have had guys going in and out of the lineup they've had g leaguers playing 30 minutes a game in some of these games, and they have a terrible record. Jimmy missed a ton of games. Avery Bradley, Tyler Hero, Goran Dragic. They, the only consistent factor there is Bam Adebayo being a boss, but everything else has been up in the air. They have a better excuse than the Raptors. So this leads me to my next point. The Heat are two games out of the sixth seed in the East. They're two and a half games out of the fifth seed. After all the crap they've dealt with, I fully expect them to be a top six seed. The Raptors, on the other hand, I'm not so sure about. Pascal Siakam is a fake star. And, uh, well, of course. That's all I'm going to say. Would it be a Towel Boys podcast without calling out Pascal Siakam? I don't think it so. It would not. No. I'm glad you did it. You put the land and stamp of approval on this podcast by saying Siakam sucks. So, <laughs> there you have Four it. Star. <laughs> Four star. Four star? No, for a star, he sucks. For a star, I was like, I don't. I'll still call him a star, but he's a really bad star. Sure. Okay. So we're going to try to implement this. So bear with us if we if we end up forgetting a couple times. But we're going to start this new segment called Rookie Spotlight, where Landon and I each week that we have a podcast discussing the NBA season, we'll bring up a couple of rookies that are really excelling lately. So. We'll bring up two rookies, probably one and two, in the Rookie of the Year race right now, starting with Tyrese Halliburton. Lennon, what have you seen from this rookie that makes you think he's going to have a special career? Well, the biggest thing is the clutch gene. We saw it with rookie Tyler Hero last year, and we're seeing it with rookie Tyrese Halliburton this year. Something about those ties. 
They just come into the league ready to hit those clutch three-point daggers. And Halliburton did just that the other night. I believe it was against the Nuggets, not positive, but he hit a, I think it was, yeah, it was a wing three-pointer with about 50 seconds left to go up by nine. And that was just like the dagger in the heart of the other team. And you don't see rookies hitting those a lot because that's a huge shot that can change the the outcome of the game. And he's done that about three to five times this year already. So keep watching out for that. I'll say something a little bit different, but definitely ties in. Not necessarily just the clutch performances, but how about the trust that the Kings have in this rookie and how much he plays in the fourth quarter and how much Halliburton has the ball in his hands. It's really impressive from a rookie. Like you said, the perfect comparison from last year is Tyler Hero, who did it in the playoffs (laughs) where he had the ball a lot in his hands and the team asked him to produce. Halliburton's in a pretty similar role. And while he's doing this, he's averaging only one and a half turnovers a game. It's pretty low for a guy who's, who has the ball in his hands. He's looked really sharp. And him and De'Aaron Fox are one of the most promising backcourts in the NBA right now going forward. This is, this is He's an impressive player. I, I feel like the Kings need to trade Buddy Heald and just kind of shore up the front court because that backcourt is so dynamic and will... I mean, they can hang on to both of those guys many years down the line. So right. th- this Halliburton being this good is really a sign that they need to move on from Buddy Heald. Right. Another guy I like a lot on that team, Rashawn Holmes. Looks like he could be a starter for a long time. Yeah, I agree. But So yeah, promising young core. Another guy along with Heald is Bagley. Well, no need to, to divulge diverge into something else. I don't want to talk about Bagley. (laughs) So the other, the other rookie, LaMelo Ball, who is finally starting due to Devontae Graham being out with an injury. And it seems like based on the performances that LaMelo might not give up that starting spot so easily. He shouldn't. Why should he? They have a great team built around his style of play. You have Terry Rozier who can, you know, pretty much do everything offensively, not to a crazy high degree, but he goes off some games. He can shoot off the bounce. He can run the pick and roll. He could get to the cup. He could do all that kind of stuff you need around the playmaking, the vision of LaMelo Ball. And then you have Gordon Hayward taking on a lot of shot creation duties himself while also being one of the smartest basketball players in the league, being able to facilitate, run the offense, hit that little pull up midi um off the pick he's an awesome player to slide in right next to Lamelo, and then pj washington miles bridges zeller even they, they all are just coexisting really well and i was a hornets advocate before the season started and i like i like where the hornets are heading yeah and specifically on Lon, uh excuse me lonzo Lamelo ball the playmaking <laughs> is unbelievably impressive to come into the league and not just be able to play make as a normal point guard but to be able to make consistent flashy plays and it's not like a guy who will come in and throw behind the back passes and they go out of bounds and he gets yelled at by his coach i've never seen lamella ball miss a behind the back pass he is so (laughs) accurate with flashy passing he is so smart already as a rookie it's only going to get better he's averaging six assists a game already only playing 27 minutes he has been absolutely sensational 
as great as Halliburton is, LaMelo for me is the clear number one in the rookie of the year race. And I'm just, I'm excited to see where this rookie goes. I think it's funny because, you know, we hit these, these rookie of the year predictions every summer where we don't know actually any idea of what's going to happen with these guys because we've never seen them play in the NBA, of course. We always overthink it. Everybody does. LaMelo was the guy in the draft. You know, everybody was hyping him up before Anthony Edwards, before Wiseman. Like, LaMelo was just the highlight guy of the draft. He got drafted at number three instead of number one. And let's be honest, LaMelo is the best player so far. I'm not saying he's going to have the best career, but he's evidently the best player and should have been the number one pick. And I didn't suggest that he should have been back then because I overthought it because I was like, hmm, maybe his skills won't translate. Maybe he's not a good enough shooter. But oftentimes, it's just the most talented guy, the one that people hype up. He ends up being, I mean, the best one. I will say that he will be the best player in this draft. There you go. I I, I think he will. He's shown that promise. While this, <clears throat> excuse me, while the scoring hasn't been that efficient yet, that's something LaMelo can work on. And maybe he'll never be an elite three-point shooter, shooting about 34%. Now, that's not great. But the bottom line is he'll make up for it in being able to attack the basket, draw contact, and make incredible passes. Yeah. That's good on the rookie spotlight. Hope you guys enjoyed that part. We'll try to keep that up for the next, you know, few weeks going into the season. We'll see if we like it and if you guys like it, and maybe we'll keep on doing it for the Talboys podcast. So on to the biggest risers and fallers in terms of NBA teams. So Andy, you want to give us your first riser? Yeah, this one's pretty obvious. The Utah Jazz, who are 9-1 and one in their last 10, I think they're now 19-5. and five. This team is very similar to last year's team. They're a little bit healthier. You have Conley, who's not coming off an injury and has really established himself as, as their point guard. You have Bogdan Bogdan, or Boyan Bogdanovich, excuse me, who's back from injury. and he's, He hasn't been great, but he's been effective enough, and he's a good enough defender. And, of course, you're led by Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert, who will probably both make the All-Star game. And Quinn Snyder is a really good coach. This team is playing together. They're connected defensively, offensively. They're efficient. And while they don't have that superstar, superstar guy that some of the other top teams, a.k.a. the Lakers, the Clippers, the Bucks, as those teams have, they still Bucks. have. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pretend like you didn't say that because <laughs> the Bucks clearly have a top 10, arguably top 5 at least top seven player. Mm-hmm. But going back to what I was saying, the Jazz don't have that. They're built on ball movement. They're built on team defense, and it is working. We don't know how long it's going to work for, but right now they are clearly at the top of the riser board. They have been sensational. Agreed. There's no doubt about that. I think the secret with them is just the well-roundedness of that team. They have a lot of shooting, a lot of defense, and a lot of role players that star in their roles. You have guys like Bogdanovich and Ingles who can play pretty damn good perimeter defense, even though they don't necessarily look like they can. <laughs> and 
Yeah. They space the floor. They move the ball. When they get it on the wing, they're not just going to chuck up bad threes. They're going to keep playing within the team offense, set up a new look for another teammate. And I just think combining that with, they have some interesting star power because Rudy Gobert is a very controversial guy who, you know, his offensive, his offensive bag is not overly impressive, but his defense, he's always, you know, top three in defensive player of the year rankings. You can't score on the inside against him. And then you have Donovan Mitchell, who has just led this team since he was a rookie. And last year in the playoffs, I mean, he was absolutely incredible, just hitting every clutch shot you could ask of him. They have a lot of talent, but like you said, (laughs) in the end, the Lakers, Clippers, they they just don't stand a chance. Yeah. Also, real quick, shout out to Royce O'Neal, one of the least talked about players in the league, for starting on that team, having a phenomenal year shooting the ball. Another guy who never gets talked about. So like you said, this team just works really hard. Yeah. And Jordan Clarkson is one of the best bench players in the league this year. That guy provides such a spark every time he comes into the game that if the Utah offense is just kind of drowning itself, which can happen sometimes, if Bogdanovich... I mean, to me, Bogdanovich is the key to that team. When he's draining threes, they are just so difficult to stop. But when he's missing and he's supposed to be that like extra 20-point-per-game scorer, they kind of fall into a slump. But, you know, if they replace Bogdanovich's production with Clarkson's sometimes, it doesn't even matter because Clarkson is so dynamic at shot creating that he can kind of make up for other guys that are having rough nights. Yeah, so go to your first team now. Who's your biggest riser? So I have the Houston Rockets here. And we talked about them a pretty good amount earlier. I'm not going to say too much. Just that the biggest thing for them is the defensive talent. And you have Christian Wood playing at an all-star caliber level. He is a very versatile defender. He can play post D. He can even switch a little bit. And then you have the backcourt of John Wall and Victor Oladipo. And this is not talked about enough. These guys are so quick. They're lengthy. They can like move their feet really fast. They can just always block your paths to the basket. And having those two point-of-attack defenders has changed this team to the point where they debatably have the best defense in the league in terms of the numbers right now. They're an impressive team. And we talked about them a little bit earlier, the whole Christian Wood aspect and how it's going to affect them. But like you said, that backcourt phenomenal defensively and both those guys can play make let's let's not forget who john wall was before the injury oladipo still not back to full oladipo form but he's still a pretty impactful player and along with some of these other really good defenders eric gordon pretty solid defender pj tucker elite defender they have a lot of defense which is what you need and this is a team that will sneak up on some of the other teams in the west especially if they get into a play-in game I wouldn't be surprised if they win a few games and get into the actual playoffs. No, it's very possible. I think it'll be like I think they'll be a ninth or a tenth seed in the end and have the chance to make it out. I don't know if Oladipo will be on the team by that time, and that's why I'm a little hesitant to proclaim yeah. them going anywhere in the playoffs. Absolutely. 
I'll move on to my next team, the New Orleans Pelicans, who are now on a three-game winning streak. They look a lot better, at least defensively. And what's really surprised me is the shooting of Eric Bledsoe, more so, and even still, Lonzo Ball. Bledsoe shooting above 40% from three when there were there was all this clamor about how this backcourt would not be able to, to play together because they can't shoot. Lonzo shooting 37 almost percent above league average still. They've both been pretty effective. Zion seeming to, seeming to slowly figure it out. The assist numbers, he's having a couple of games where the playmaking has impressed. Brandon Ingram's starting to do Brandon Ingram things, and this, this team is kind of buying into the Stan Van Gundy system and playing well defensively. This team is starting to impress me after they were off to a terrible start, and I like the direction they're headed in. Here's what I'll say about the Pelicans. They were one of the teams that I most wanted to succeed this year, and I hated Steven Adams' trade. We've talked about this on the pod all the time. I'm not going to go into it, but I will say this about Eric Bledsoe. The knock on him is not the regular season, and it hasn't been for the past four years since he's been on the Bucks and been going to the playoffs with them. The problem is his last three playoffs, 32% from three, 24% from three, on 4.8 attempts that year, and then 25% from three in last year's playoffs. And if the Pelicans are planning to go anywhere They better hope that this career high during the regular season for Eric Bledsoe is going to translate because it usually does not. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point. But he is shooting a lot better, which is promising. So we shall see. Go ahead with your second team. Yeah, my team is another riser, the Philadelphia 76ers. And they've been rising the whole year. But I put them on here because I kept saying that their strength of schedule made it so that I couldn't fully trust them. And they beat the Lakers in a spectacular game about a week ago. And to me, that was their first quality win where I am able to trust them a little bit more. I don't think that they're going to go far in the playoffs. I don't think that they're elite by any means. What I do think is that they are finally in a position because of the shooting that Daryl Morey put around Simmons and Embiid and the fact that Tobias Harris has been way better than expected this year. I do believe that they're going to be a tough out for anybody in the playoffs, mostly because of Joel Embiid's dominance and what he can create for his teammates. I don't trust the Sixers. (laughs) I I don't know what it is about them. Embiid's an incredible player, but I don't trust Ben Simmons in the playoffs. I don't trust Tobias Harris in the playoffs, and I don't trust Doc Rivers in the playoffs. So until I see it in the playoffs, I know I keep saying the word playoffs, but the playoffs and the 76ers, to me, don't mesh well in my head. They're playing exceptional basketball, but again, I don't care until I see it when it matters. So that's that was kind of my point to that whole you know, rant, I guess you uh, just ignored me, which is fair. But my point is, I agree with you. I don't trust them. But the fact that they beat the Lakers is a first step toward getting to that point. Listen, of course I'm listening to you. What else would I be doing right now? (laughs) The answer is nothing. 
I wanted to emphasize my thoughts and how they only surround the playoffs and how I don't care they beat the Lakers. It's the regular season. Do it in the playoffs. Okay, that's okay. Yes, of course. That's obviously the answer. That I, that's my phrase. I say that all the time. I I mostly care about the playoffs. The regular season doesn't matter. What I'm saying is if they lost that game, then I'd be on here being like, yeah, all right, like it's same old Sixers. But instead, there's a little glimmer of hope inside my heart because maybe they're finally going down the right path. That's my only point. I still don't trust them. I agree with you. All right. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, my third riser. The San Antonio Spurs. I'll pause while I pose this question for the listeners out there, but try to guess what the Spurs record is. Yeah, they're 13 and 10. 13 and 10. The Spurs are 13 and 10. I thought this team was five games under until I really looked into it more. They've beaten the Nuggets. They've beaten the Celtics. They've beaten the Rockets lately. Some pretty quality wins. The Spurs have a surprising amount of talent on this roster. Guys like DeMar DeRozan, DeJounte Murray, Derek White back. Keldon Johnson's been really good. They don't. I think that Lamarcus Aldridge has still been out with injury, right? He's been, He's been playing some. Up. He's been playing some. Patty Mills, another scorer off the bench. Pop is doing pop things. He's coaching exceptionally well, and this team is responding. They've been pretty solid. It seems like the Spurs right now are headed towards a playoff spot, which is pretty surprising. We can we'll see if they keep it up, but they do have a decent amount of talent. Where nobody thinks about this team as flashy necessarily. Of course, they have the coaching. The defense has been decent, and and DeMar DeRozan's playing really well again, along with some of these other younger guys who are really stepping up. With all of that being said, and I saw the Spurs record today, and I've seen it the last few days. I check the standings every night, but today it just popped out. I was like, wow, the Spurs are 13-10, and 10, and I thought this was going to be the second worst team in the West. My thing with them is that Let's be honest, they're not making it out of the first round if they even make it to the playoffs. They will they could lose a play-in to like a 10th seed if they were a 6th seed or a 7th seed. I wouldn't put that past them. They are simply not as talented as a lot of these teams in the West. DeMar is on an expiring contract. LaMarcus is on an expiring contract. What do you think the Celtics would give for LaMarcus Aldridge? What do you think... I don't know. Like, what do you think the Clippers would give for DeMar DeRozan? Or, you know, the Bucks would give for whoever. Point Rudy Gay. Point being, they have these pieces that they can only get assets out of for one more year. And they've held on to them for so long. They finally have a decent record. They've been kind of bad the last year or so. Time to trade them when their value is the highest. Tank this year. Get a good draft pick in the best draft in, you know, however many years and start rebuilding with new stars. Ultimately, I, th- I think I agree with you. I just, what, is Pop going to want to do that? That's the question. I don't know. But all I can say is, talking about now, the Spurs have impressed me. And I don't think the Spurs should look forward <laughs> into the future right now because they should focus on having a, successful year while pop's still there who knows how long he's gonna coach and yeah this the spurs will look different next year for sure but right now they they look pretty good they do 
Um, so my last riser is the Sacramento Kings. That backcourt of Hal Burton and De'Aaron Fox looking fantastic. Harrison Barnes, a sleeper role player this year who has been performing out of his mind for what his expectations were, has been doing everything for that team. He's their Swiss Army knife. He is that wing defender that also shot creates, that also play makes, that does all of the stuff that that the small forward position is supposed to do. And he's doing it at a remarkable level for what we expected of him. It's actually, he is finally at the level of his contract, <laughs> yeah. which is it's surprising. Time. It's about exactly. time. The Kings have impressed me. I talked about him a little bit earlier. This is this is a very, very promising backcourt. And yeah, I, I don't have too much to say about them besides the fact that they, like you said, they're they're one of the risers. I do agree with that. Playing pretty solid basketball. All right, let's start the fallers. Let's hear your first. This 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 one makes me real sad. This is, as you know, this is uh this is my team. The Memphis Grizzlies, who I I love this Grizzlies team. I think they're on a a three-game losing streak now, although I do say injuries have bugged them. Jaron Jackson Jr. has been out the whole year. Valanchunas got hurt. I'm not even sure if he's back yet, but he was out at least a week. This team doesn't have all that much talent. John Morant is, of course, the guy you look at and think of when you think of the Grizzlies. And a guy like Tyus Jones off the bench is kind of their typical role player where Tyus Jones isn't the most talented guy. He's smart. He's coached well. He's disciplined. But Dylan Brooks, Kyle Anderson, these guys aren't loaded with talent. Brandon Clark, talented, but more so just a solid contributor. This team is really overperforming with pretty solid coaching, kind of like the Jazz and the Spurs team where there's talent but it's more so the coaching and the overall scheme. And that's starting to catch up a little bit to the Grizzlies, especially because a lot of these Grizzlies players are pretty young. So normally you don't see that from young teams. That is an issue going forward, though. Yeah, the Grizzlies are... I mean, they were your team. You love the Grizzlies. You think that... still do. You basically had the Grizzlies, I have the Pelicans, and we always kind of stick to those teams and hope that they'll do well in our own way um yeah the grizzlies had way too hot of a start and they're starting to come back down to earth and even with that they're still really good the biggest problem for them is jaw has not been the same since returning from the ankle injury but once he gets it rolling i i think jaron jackson is supposed to return sometime in the next month and justice winslow said that he should be back in february so once they get that team together, I think they're going to be pretty scary. February of 2025 for Winslow? <laughs> Who knows? Do, do Who we knows? actually believe he's going to come back? That That's kind of an issue. Yeah, he seems to find a way to not play basketball, unfortunately. It's pretty weird, the whole situation, but we won't get into that now. That's just, right. you know. Yeah, no. <laughs> Well, Go ahead with your, speaking your of first. Winslow's old team, the Miami Heat are my first faller I want to talk about. And they're on a two-game winning streak. So in this, you know, micro scope, <laughs> in a micro scope, <laughs> they are um, 
they're rising, but in the macro, they are falling pretty tremendously from their peak in the finals last year. And there are a lot of problems with this team. To start out, they're not getting playoff Jimmy Butler, who is creating shots for himself and hitting turnaround fadeaways and hitting three-pointers and, you know, doing all of the stuff that Kawhi and LeBron do. You're just not getting that version of him. He's still really good. He's still one of the best defenders in the league. He's still getting, you know, six, seven assists per game, six, seven rebounds per game, trying to inspire that team to go further than they're going. He's doing his best, but it's just not playoff Jimmy. That's just factual. And there's less around him to make up for that because Jay Crowder, for all, you know, being a role player means, was just amazing in the playoffs last year. He was shooting 40% from three through the first two series. He fell off a little bit from, you know, in the Celtics series and then against the Lakers. But his defense on Giannis, on Middleton, on LeBron, on Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, being able to switch all of those actions, they're missing that so much right now because you know who's in his spot? <laughs> oh, I do, but why don't you tell everybody? <laughs> the Canadian, Kelly Olenek. You want to continue from there? <laughs> well, I think your hatred for Kelly Olenek is pretty hilarious, but it's obviously very different having Kelly Olenek versus Jay Crowder. The defense is not the same. Jay Crowder can switch really one through five. Kelly Olenek can switch bench spot to bench spot <laughs> guarding guys. <laughs> That's pretty much it. The Heat are not the same this year. I'm not saying that that won't change, but of course, when the Heat went on that run, the shooting was outstanding, and the shooting definitely isn't to that level right now. And the biggest problem is is relating more so to the Crowder to Olenek uh, downgrade the defense without Jimmy Butler, without that leadership defensively. Bam Adebayo is a defensive player of the year candidate, and he will be for the next 10 years. That's not enough, though. Guys like Tyler Hero, Drogic when he's played, Duncan Robinson, they're not exactly good defenders. So without two tremendous leaders defensively, it's it's really hurt the Heat. They're giving up, I think, the, the highest three-point percentage or the most threes in the league this year, which is so uncharacteristic of this Miami Heat team. I do think you'll see a turnaround, though. But it has not been pretty, especially without Jimmy Butler. Right. And one small point I want to make. If you are going to say that the 2020 Heat that made the finals were a fluke, then you need to give the Heat some slack this year and having a bad record. Because last season was weird. This season is weird. If you're going to say one's a fluke in the positive direction, you have to say one's a fluke in the negative direction. If you say that last year's team was not a fluke, for instance, a lot of Heat fans, and that they deserve to be there, then you have to come down on your team and say, this is embarrassing right now, because if last year wasn't a fluke, this year is not a fluke, and this team is really just bad. Yeah, that's, that sums it up. I can't, can't disagree. So I'll move on to my second faller, the Indiana Pacers, who are on a three-game losing streak. They've lost five of their last six. I'm starting to see 
the loss of TJ Warren affecting the Pacers more than I did right after he was out. I think the lack of depth and the lack of defense from a perimeter guy is starting to hurt them a little bit. They have Jeremy Lamb and Justin Holiday who are now starting with McDermott off the bench. It's just hurting the Pacers a little bit. I think both Sabonis and Brogdon, who have been really good this year, are top 12 to 15 minutes played of any player. The Pacers are relying heavily on these starters, and it might be slowly catching up on them. They played, excuse me, they played tremendous basketball to start the year, but it's starting to, to wear off a little bit, and I do think the depth is starting to hurt them. I will say this about Jeremy Lamb. I, since he got hurt last year, he got that decent contract from the Pacers that summer where everybody was getting contracts, everybody was changing teams. Um, I like him a lot. And once he assumes that sixth man role, when TJ right. Warren comes back to, exactly you know, gets healthy again, they are going to be so good. They have so many dynamic weapons, whether it's Miles Turner blocking shots, DeMontis Sabonis posting up and, you know, passing from the elbow, Malcolm Brogdon hitting threes, driving on guys. TJ Warren, he was their leading scorer last year. They have so many interesting elements. And to add Jeremy Lamb into that too, who's dynamic on both sides of the ball, they are going to be one hell of a team in the playoffs this year. Very different from the team that lost 4-0 to to the Heat last year without Sabonis. That leads me to my last point on the Pacers, which, perfect. Great job, Landon. <laughs> Jeremy Lamb is a really good player, but his role on this team is the sixth man. So him starting takes away from that bench scoring and inserting Holiday, Justin Holiday at the two and adding back TJ Warren when he's healthy and allowing Lamb to come off the bench alongside TJ McConnell or Aaron Holiday, whoever's playing better, and a shooter like Dougie McBuckets. This team adds a lot of their depth and the scoring has benefited a lot. It's going to help them in the long run a lot. Yeah. All right, on to my next faller. I have the Boston Celtics here. Who has potentially the worst contract in the league this year? There are a few right answers here, but one of them happens to be on this team. Sad. It is sad. I hate to see it, but this guy, Kemba Walker, since getting his payday, has not been what the Boston Celtics were expecting to get. It's really sad. I love Kemba as a player. But when you are not scoring well, and the defense is just never not good, never there, (laughs) never there. The whole point of a guy like Kemba, just like a guy like Steph or a guy like Dame, it's the offensive impact. And of course, Kemba's not in the realm of those other guys. But come on, when when you're missing that last step back against the Lakers, when that's your shot, when you're shooting twenty five percent and you're putting up less than ten points. That is not a winning formula for a Celtics team that does not have that much depth. They need him Zero to be depth. special. They don't have they any depth. They need him to be special. And quite frankly, he's been the opposite of special. The Celtics are probably the least deep good team in the league. Like maybe even the least deep average to good team. They have <laughs> nobody. Literally nobody. Um, it's, it's not good. It's not good. I was, you were super high on the Celtics coming into the year. You had them go into the finals. Do you still 
Are you still on that wave? Well, Kemba's definitely concerning. I expected Kemba to look really good, and he hasn't. Um, Jalen Brown has taken strides that that really make up part of the lack of Kemba offense, but if Kemba wants to play, the defense seems to be there. And it's tough for me to say whether the Celtics still get there. I I think the, the Nets, Nets have I think the Nets yeah. will beat the Celtics, but I do think the Celtics make make it to the East Finals just from the willpower of of those tremendous wings and Tatum and Brown. But right. if Kemba looks like this, and I he might drag them down. They might lose before that. Agreed. It's very possible with him playing that defense and shooting yeah, four for twenty or whatever. It's terrible. So I'll move on to my last team now. Yep. Uh, I have the Cleveland Cavaliers, who started really well, and we heard about Sexland with Darius Garland and Colin Sexton just being awesome. <laughs> but the Cavs now are in a little three-game losing streak, although they have lost to the Clippers, the Bucks, and the Bucks, which of course makes sense. But it seems like they've lost a little bit of this pizzazz. Garland being out a little bit, he's still kind of working his way back. And while Colin Sexton's really a borderline all-star this year, it's more of a scoring option than than being an overall playmaker, which is something he could definitely develop. But it seems like the Cavs are kind of slowing down off this start, this hot start. And even though they have guys who have a lot of talent, like Sexton, like Andre Drummond, more so, I think the the performances of like Seti Osman and Larry Nance when they were overachieving carried them to this point, and I expect them to slowly kind of snap back down to reality. A little well, bit. Nance is out for like four to six weeks, which really yeah, hurts that, them. That's yeah, <laughs> great point. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I don't have too much to say about the Cavs. I they went on that hot start. I didn't think it meant anything. I still don't think it meant anything. Oh yeah, All, now they're ten and fourteen. So. All, all I can say is that Sexton is the real deal, and Andy nailed that one, and I was wrong about that one. I was not a Sexton believer until, I mean, those two Brooklyn games, and now I'm on the bandwagon, so no shame. He's here to stay. All right. Yeah, so the last faller of the night, Dallas Mavericks, with potentially the worst fall out of all of the teams in the league. I don't even know where to begin here. They have a top 10 player, which should always lead you to a better record than they have right now. They have a pretty good second best player. Biggest problem is he's injured all the time. And that's Chris Stapp's Porzingis. I mean, he's not a championship level second best player, but he's a fourth seed in the West kind of second best player. But he's nowhere to be found in terms of impact on winning right now and then the rest of the team doesn't have the same flair to it it did last year I don't really know what it is some of it's COVID and injuries because Tim Hardaway Jr. Josh Richardson like different different guys have been out for extended periods of time but even when they're all together it doesn't seem like they're having fun out there it seems like Luca is just doing everything for the team and it's usually not enough it's why I said they're similar to Steph. Uh, Luca and Steph are in similar positions right now because they're doing everything they can, but you need to have a decent team around you to to go far. And I just I, I wish they were better. It doesn't make that much sense to me either because they really have 
some decent three and D guys. And to me, it seems like this roster is good enough. I, I can't really explain it. I mean, they're going to make the playoffs. I feel very confident in saying that. I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I want to see Luca again. I, I think they will too, but yeah, they got to step it up. Yep, for sure. All right, so we'll stop there, and on our next podcast, we will go into some detail about the All-Star game and players we think that will and will not make it. But as always, thank you guys for listening. Make sure to keep checking out our social media accounts at the Towel Boys on Instagram and Twitter, and stay tuned for the release of our next podcast. Thanks, guys. Always remember to embrace your inner Towel Boy.